Zach Shavideo here with Boston Speaks Up. Hi, Hi Zach. What's up, Trip? How are you? I'm here with, with Trip Clements. Great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Good to be here. Thanks for the beer. This is the first podcast I've had a beer. Cheers. Cheers. I know I was thinking we should have saved the opening of the can for the first sound on the podcast. That would have been amazing. Because it's a good sound. Maybe I can have my editor throw in like a beer sound. Okay, then take this part yeah. out. For so everyone else, in, instead, <laughs> they can just kind of get us like randomly going, ah, because we're drinking Hobo Life. Yep. Lord. This podcast is brought to you by Lord Hobo. <laughs> Actually, they did sponsor a Halloween party, so they deserve a shout out. They do. Yeah, and this is left over from that. So when we put this podcast out, we will absolutely tweet at them. Okay. Let them know that they are in natively embedded sponsors of our uh, of our podcast. There's about 20 cans left in the vending machine downstairs. These are good. I like I like cit- cit- anything with citra hops, dry hopped, session IPA, yep. keeping it light. Should we just do like an hour of beer review? I'm down to do that. I could do that. Yep. I could just open up untapped and <laughs> kind of go through my four star ratings and above. We could start there. I'm game. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, I'm actually, this is a, this is a fun podcast to do because we are in Windy Films. You are a partner Mm -hmm. at Windy Films, Windy Media, and have graciously welcomed me in as a sort of creative collaborator to co-work here over the last six months or so since I moved back from Los Angeles. So I'd like to thank you for that. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure having you around. I think that... Will, Harvey, and I, who were my partners, we were concerned that we wouldn't have enough body to, bodies to fill uh, this floor when we signed the lease on it with just us and our employees. But it's been great having friends like you and others come hang out and do your own creative thing and just have your energy nearby. Cool. That's actually a good backdrop to kind of give some background to listeners on where we are. Describe a bit of your background and and your history with this space mm-hmm. and sure. how you discovered it and what sure. how you've transformed it the last few years. Well, I did not discover this building. My dad did. Uh, he's a photographer and a mentor to me and many other people, including uh, two friends of mine from childhood who I ended up starting this company with. And when I was going to college in Boston at Emerson, he said, you know, decades ago I used to have a photo studio in the East Boston shipyard. So we came over here, we checked it out. It's this century-old fire station that was abandoned for 10 years when I first saw it back when I was in college. And its previous tenant was a construction company that built Terminal A during the Big Dig. Before that, it was uh, Aerosmith. (laughs) This was their recording studio for like a year or something. Amazing. And then before that, it was my dad's photo studio in the 80s. Just for a few years, there was a recession, 1989, 1990, and he had to break the lease and move out. But with FedEx fax machines, suddenly he could start working remotely. And he and um, his producer, who he married and is my mother, moved to Rhode Island. And now we're here full circle. It kind of blows their mind to be here. Obviously, it's not their building. Um, but they met in front of this building. They did. They met in front of this building. Um, my dad really needed to hire a new producer, and he was 45 minutes late to their interview, so she almost left. But glad she stuck around. And um, 
they're still living down in Rhode Island. They come up, you know, once in a while just to see what's going on up here. And um, obviously they're always welcome. But it is a little bit mind-blowing for them to come back to the space, um, especially after it really didn't look anything like their studio. 25 years later, after they moved out, all of those tenants after them put up walls and a big drop ceiling in the studio downstairs. So the, the first floor has 25-foot ceilings. And our landlord didn't even know that. That's, a, that's crazy. <laughs> because there was this drop ceiling in the first There's floor. There's those drop like popcorn ceilings? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like the cheap tiles. Cheap ones, yeah. Yeah, with the fluorescent lights. And and your, your dad could tip you off? Well, in college, <laughs> like I said, he said, let's go check out that old studio. And the door was unlocked. <laughs> so we walked in. There was a family of raccoons, a bunch of old golf carts and cars parked in here. And that drop ceiling made it pretty unrecognizable for him, but he jumped up on a chair and moved one of the ceiling tiles away. And he turned on a flashlight on his phone when he could see all of the electrical work that he had installed in the ceiling of the building. And, um, you know, people ask us often, like, what do you have your dad to thank for and it's really two things it's you know a lot of mentorship <laughs> when it comes to obviously personal life there's a longer list but professionally i've his mentorship to thank for and that lighting grid in the ceiling it's just a bunch of pipes and power that you know we can now hang lights from and um i think after he left it was a like a film studio for a few years but then um people forgot about the grid and so um, it was a great asset for us to to inherit from him almost accidentally. Cool. Yeah. What does he say has changed and what hasn't changed about Eastie in the last 25 years? Well, I mean, we like to joke that, um, you know, our business model is like something between uh, Scooby-Doo and Ghostbusters because the scene in Ghostbusters when they walk into what will be their <laughs> headquarters is a fire station and the real estate agent is like well you got to watch out for the asbestos and the neighborhood is demilitarized zone and harold ramus slides down on the fire pole and says we'll take we'll it, take it. <laughs> that's, yeah, and that's totally like our reaction where i was not kidding there's literally family raccoons and then squirrels we later found out because we were in a client meeting like three years later and squirrels run behind their backs while we're still meeting. So really it was like, even for years after moving in, a total nightmare. I remember, cause I, m I met your partner, Will, outside yeah. at KO Pies yeah. and took a peek in and definitely had a little bit of fixer upper right. going on. Yeah. So to answer your question, East Boston has uh, the history for us, not just because my parents met here and worked here, but also because Harvey and his father lived here in high school and college. Um, all three of us, Harvey, Will, and myself, we all worked at Pierce Park when we were in college during the summers. It's really kind of a, a adopted home in Boston for us. Uh, we're, none of us are from Boston, but when we moved here, it became our center of orbit. And I think as you know, young white yuppies coming to East Boston, it's always been really center of mind for us to be incredibly respectful of the immigrant population, which really does call it home. And that's a big concern for us 
since we've been here in, in just a month less than four years now, there has just been an absolute arms race to develop the waterfront with condominiums that are so expensive. I don't even think a lot of people who are from Boston can afford. As far as I can tell, it's a lot of people who kind of treat Boston as a rental city, if you know what I mean by that. Yeah. They might have a financial... Real estate investments? Mm, yeah, it, it's, it's real estate investments. It's a lot of um, people who work in the financial district, which is only one stop away on the train. And maybe they're only consulting or working here for six months to a year. And, uh, you know, to them, East Boston is as arbitrary on the map as literally anywhere else because they might have just been assigned to Boston by their higher-ups. And they're not necessarily to, to blame for the rising real estate values. It's just gentrification is kind of, you know, tale as old as time. But it's just, for us, it, incredibly important in times like this where um, you see the value of this real estate going up to keep the community and the heritage of immigration of East Boston kind of front and center in our minds. So we do um, a little bit to support the community. We partner with the McKay School, um, which is a K, which is a K through eight that serves I think like ninety five percent second generation Central and South American students. Um, you know we work with Zoomix, which is the other fire station in East Boston. They do. Uh, music recording and their radio station for youth. Um, so we, we, we try and, and invest in that community. East Boston has always been the Ellis Island for Boston. It's always been a home for immigrants. First it was the Irish, then it was the Italians, Eastern Jews, now Central and South Americans. And I think what's interesting about this neighborhood, unlike, say, the North End, is that all of those populations are still here. They're coexisting. And so there is a respect among all of these different ethnicities for each other because they understand they're all here for the American dream. And that's what I worry about. This new wave of gentrifying yuppies is that they don't necessarily have that experience. And so um, it's just incredibly important for, you know, young white guys like us who are not first or second generation immigrants to keep that kind of very, very front of our minds and always be really respectful for the people who are trying to raise their families and, and, and make it in East Boston. Yeah. Respect the past. Totally. It's actually, I have an interesting, that's an interesting um, segue into some of your projects. Like, I'd love you to give a little background on Windy. Yeah. But specifically, you, you've you learned quite a bit just from being immersed in East Boston. You have the, the family history. Your business has been here for more than four years at this point. You recently did a documentary for the ICA watershed on East Boston. Is that correct? And I feel like that's a good example sort of manifestation of the types of projects and the types of stories that matter to Wendy mm -hmm. in the world. So mm -hmm. why don't you talk a little bit about Wendy, perhaps that project, maybe some of the work you've done with Planned Parenthood, for example. Sure, yeah. Um, well, I, I just, yeah, I think getting back to this sense of uh, responsibility that Harvey, Will, and I have to share some of the resources that we have access to that are really a result of the accident of our birth um, you know we have different social economic backgrounds but the three of us share in common that we are young able-bodied cisgender white guys from New England and that is a baseline kind of immediately afforded us 
a lot of access to resources, a lot of privileges, um, and that'll continue throughout our life. A lot of doors are going to open just because of that. We work really hard on top of that. You know, we grind every week incredibly hard. Um, but it's also really important for us to remember that those resources that we were afforded, again, to no fault, to no credit or fault of our own, um, they really deserve to be shared with other people who are working as hard or harder than we are. And so um, that's kind of that's that sense of shared responsibility. That's a big, important basis for our company, which has a mission of telling stories of social impact and positive change. So we really just focus on nonfiction stories around people who create positive change in the environment, science, technology, health, education, and human rights. And Boston is an awesome city for that. Between all the education that's kind of born out of the city to healthcare, to tech startups, um, to political activism, it's, it's been a really great city for us to, to find that brand and that mission in. I could, I could be specific. You asked me to talk about well, yeah, I was curious. specific projects, so, too. Some, yeah, I mean, it's, so it's 2018. We're mm -hmm. recording this podcast in December, and likely we'll get it out shortly after the holiday break. Sort of just 2018 in review, what are some projects you worked on this year you're particularly proud of mm -hmm. and um, are things that you'd love to share with listeners? Yeah. Well, it's been a really banner year for us just because our company really grew um, beyond the three of us. And this was something that we really were putting into motion for a long time now. And it allowed us to go tell stories about people who we do not share experiences with on a personal level. But we feel a strong, like I said, responsibility, but also empathy for their experience because our stories often focus on people who have overcome adversity. And that is such a universal story. And so for us, it's about understanding the unique challenges they face, but ultimately about how they were able to transcend their race, their gender, their religion, their social economic challenges, and um, we're able to tell a very universal story of overcoming that adversity. And I think that's where we're seeing our stories transcend audiences. You know, we do a story about, uh, let's say, a single mother who's losing her Medicare, and all of the Planned, Planned Parenthood clinics around her in Iowa are closing down. That's not just a story for single mothers. That's a story for anybody who has any empathy in their body. <laughs> I mean, right. you could be pro-life, and our goal is for you to empathize with this woman. And so uh, 2018, just circling back here, um, was a great year because we were able to tell a story of a nonprofit here in Boston that gets kids from the inner city into college by using baseball. We were able to tell a story of women who have had abortions in Maine. Um, we were able to tell a story of um, the racial and ethnic disparities that happen in the hospital system with Mass General Hospital. Um, 
you know, I, I could go on and Amazing. on. We were able to tell stories about people who overcame opioid addiction here. We flew them in from all across the country and um, interviewed them down in the studio. Um, and I think we finally reached our goal, which we've had for a few years now, of being able to tell those stories, not because we are the ones behind the camera. You know, the three of us as partners view us as a part of this bigger infrastructure that is our studio, that is our mission, that includes our camera and all of the quiver and the van and the sprinter and our staff, amazing team of people that are here to support right. and include diverse directors and cinematographers and editors so that people on our side of the camera reflect people on the other side of the camera. So it's not just about giving a voice to people who don't normally have one because we're telling their story, but also because they are the storytellers too. Follow-up question to that is with regards to Windy and storytelling and sort of your trajectory that you're on aspirationally, what are the, what's the top story or two or three that you or you and your partners, perhaps there's consensus, but what, what story or a couple stories do you really have on your mind as ones that you want to pursue moving forward that are maybe really big stories? Like, for example, in your one word answers, climate came up as like a world issue yeah. that you most care about addressing. So perhaps that's an issue. But are there any stories right now? And I'm just curious, heading into 2019, do you have, how do you prepare for, you've built up solid brand, you have a lot of folks that come to Windy because they know that you take care to give due attention to sort of the purpose, character-driven stories mm -hmm. that, you'll, that you'll tell. How selective can you be? And in a perfect world where you get to be absolutely selective, what are your top couple, two, three stories going into next year and beyond that you really want to focus on and align with and be a steward of? Yeah. I mean, we think about that all the time. Um, one of them is, you know, we're lucky enough to already have him as a client, frankly. We got to really pay respect to Planned Parenthood because they are a dream client, but they also are a client that we've been working with now for two years. We picked up the phone, I think like the week after 2016 election, and we cold called them. We said, we will donate our services to you. And uh, they said, yes, we didn't know them at all. Amazing. So your initial yeah. pitch to Planned Parenthood was Trump just got elected. Yeah. Yeah. We will donate our services. Right. You're like the stories that... Planned Parenthood can be telling and what Planned Parenthood stands for matter. Right, right. And we don't care about money. Well, we had just <laughs> bought the van. We just renovated it. We, you're talking about your Sprinter van. Yeah, our Sprinter van. We just uh, bought a camera. And we were ready to go. I mean, there was a lot of cost involved in Pro Bono, but it was cost that we had already assumed. So... It was actually at a point where it was becoming more expensive to do nothing. <laughs> Just sit around and not tell stories. And the cost of doing business sometimes, yeah, was actually going out and doing exactly. doing that for Planned Parenthood. Yeah, yeah. So So that's a big one going. Yeah, it's a big yeah, Planned Parenthood, big 
uh, terrific client for us. Um, Conservation Law Foundation is one of our oldest clients. They're here in Boston, and we love what they do throughout New England. We want to, uh, in a similar genre, work with World Wildlife Foundation or Greenpeace or you know 360.org or, or any of these large organizations that are really focused on perhaps obviously the biggest threat to humanity which is climate change um so i think that would be cool. a, that would be a really big goal for us coming into 2019 um but uh, the third one is is for us very much still focused on local change local action that's kind of thinking globally um so for Example, uh, we're thinking of doing an original series on innovators in food justice, and that goes at it from a sustainability angle, that goes at it from a social justice angle, um, working with you know groups like Fresh Truck or MIT Media Lab, who's uh, supported by the Shaw Foundation to design food in computers. <laughs> Um, you know, Fresh Truck is bringing local produce to food deserts in urban areas. Um, we're finally at a place now where, you know, we can get a little bit of resources through the partnership with some of those organizations that don't have the resources of a national brand like Planned Parenthood or Greenpeace. Um, but we're still able to go out and dedicate the exact same amount of commitment and quality to a story like that. Um, I think the base from 2018 it's a story that we did that is a good example of that where we really created a partnership with them and the ad agency Boathouse um, and for you know uh, the, the ability to just put you know money aside and say we're going to do all we can to make this story as great as we can um, again that was the one about uh, kids from Rochester and Dor uh, Dorchester and Roxbury. <laughs> um, who? Uh, it's interesting how how Roxbury and Dorchester can, know, can actually like create my, a Rochester. Yeah, yeah which doesn't exist in, in Boston. Yeah, exactly. But Roxbury and Dorchester. Like, what I'm from Boston, say? so I know exactly what you really meant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dorchester and Roxbury, who again are are getting into college through this baseball program. Um, that's a model that we would love to continue to do again and again on a local level. I'm really glad that, by the way, this beer is really good. Isn't it great? Yeah. Again, Lord Hobo. Unbelievable. Thank you, Lord Hobo. <laughs> Dry Hop Citra Session IPA. Uh, this, this commercial break uh, yeah. brought to you by Lord Hobo. I'm glad that your third topic was Boston, local stories, Boston. Yeah. Because I wanted to segue into Boston. You're from Rhode Island. You're up here in Boston. Your answer to why Boston was access we also talked a bit about the thing you change about Boston is is its stodginess, which yeah. I wanted to talk about a little bit and just think there's, um, but Boston, why Boston? Why is it so uniquely suited for your storytelling, but also acknowledging, you know, some of the challenges that you see um, in being a creative first sort of storytelling brand here in Boston? I'm curious what are the advantages why is it unique that you're here why are you unique why are you uniquely suited to serve boston yeah. in the role that you're in yeah but what challenges do you face in it yeah i mean 
uh, Boston is, I think I really, I can't necessarily compare it to other cities because it's really the only city I know. But as far as I can tell, it is a city of pretty extreme opposites um, in terms of how it walks and how it talks. And uh, we project a very politically and socially progressive ideology to the world. And at home, it's, it's a little bit of a different story. Um, again, you know, I, I would go back to the very first answer I gave you, which was about how this company is based on a recognition and a responsibility um, to do something about extending the resources of our privilege to people who weren't born with that same privilege. Um, that's something that is often spoken about and talked about in Boston, but all too conveniently forgotten. You know, again, just to go back to the city of opposites, yes, Massachusetts was the first state to outlaw slavery. It was also the first state to legalize slavery. Um, you know, redlining after the GI Bill was a huge problem. Urban revitalization um, really kick-started gentrification in the second half of the 20th century in Boston. And so a lot of that uh, progressive privilege um, that I think a lot of Trump voters are really angry at the coasts for is in full effect in the city. At the same time, there's a lot of people who are working really hard to actually um, implement the changes that they want to see. And uh, they come from you know, a lot of universities or, or the city itself to make a lot of those changes. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think that I wrote Access because that's the honest answer. The honest answer is that I have benefited from that stodginess, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, my dad is, uh, you know, he had his career in Boston before I did. Um, it was a long time ago, so that has opened some doors, but certainly not a lot. Um, but some is more than some none. Some is more than none. That's my point. Yeah. And um, my mom is also from yeah. Boston. That's opened some doors. Yeah. And then, again, you know, especially in a city like Boston, being a white guy is going to get me into rooms that it wouldn't otherwise. And so um, I think that a lot of people in my generation who are in my place recognize the responsibility that we have to open up that access mm. to those resources and make Boston less stodgy, yeah. less um, divided. Interesting. I want to connect the thread to previous Boston Speaks Up conversation in a future one. Mm -hmm. So I chatted with Lucy Maffei from Boston O. She moved here from Italy. She's been in the U.S. for five years. She's lived in D.C. She's lived in Chicago. She's lived in Boston. Really loves Boston. Really prefers it over the other few cities that she's lived in in cool. the States. It's good to hear. Yeah. She was, she, I mean, she t told an amazing story about her mother being here for 10 days and just saying they're the kindest people. <laughs> she's they're so so kind like it's just like a beautiful beautiful story and she was thinking boston yeah and wow. and it was like it was 
it was refreshing because I do think in general when there are just strangers around in need, like Boston actually does have a very like just throw thing throw throw your throw stuff to the side, like throw what you're up to to the side and like help this help this stranger sort of good Samaritan you see, side. You do see that. I see that yeah. and I actually see that more than I'd see that in like in New York and other East Coast cities. I actually think Boston's pretty unique in that regard. I th- actually feel a sense of a community. But the thing that Lucy and I talked about that I wanted that that you kind of just struck a note on is the disparity yeah. between rich and poor. And we kind of got into the, like the the access and the growing floor just to get like get in yeah. and be around successful people in Boston and. The next one of the next conversations I'll have will be with Marty Fuller, who is the head of sort of external relations for Boston Plan for Excellence, which they do all the STEM sort of design for Boston public schools to ensure that every child in Boston has the same opportunity yeah. to learn about things like robotics and and sort of have opportunities to study engineering and mathematics and 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 understand the the zeros and ones world that we're increasingly where the jobs are. And I imagine several of the things I want to double click on with Marty or some of the things I started with, with Lucy, and I'd love to ask your opinion on is my fear is that cities around the country and Boston is no different are increasingly difficult to access for people of, of pretty broad socioeconomic background. Yeah. And that concerns me because all the opportunities I've personally been afforded were because I scratched and clawed through high school, got a solid enough scholarship to go to BU, will be paying off student loans forever, it seems. But it put me around this whole new talent pool Mm -hmm. at school, in the city of Boston, in in a study abroad program, contacts that spread into New York and LA, and it's this whole trajectory that I'm currently living that I was afforded because I was able to access Boston and afterwards could afford to share rent with a few friends. Well, I think we're going to see a huge disruption in terms of cost of living, in terms of transportation, in terms of access, in terms of authorship to Boston very, very soon. And all cities very soon. Um, it's almost like clockwork. I mean, we're really repeating the cycles that we've always created. Uh, there's going to be in the next, you know, five, 10 years, massive disruption, innovation in transportation. How we get around is going to be like totally different. <laughs> Self-driving right. is going to, in my opinion, solve traffic. Traffic is a human error. And I see a future very soon where you could commute to Vermont in half an hour because you're five feet away from another car doing a hundred miles an hour the whole way here. I mean, that's not that far away. So what's going to happen? The exact same thing happened when we built the highways. The exact same thing happened when we invented the car. I love this. This is a very optimistic view. So does that speed up access? So what I'm saying is that it creates a bit of a vacuum okay. where you have people who have the resources to access self-driving cars, for example, which um, which may have a high barrier for entry, right? Which in the '50s was just access to, you know, a, a car. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
and then you know before that was access to um you know a horse <laughs> um, but now it's if you have access to a self-driving car um by the way this is assuming that nothing happens to the commuter rail which i think is a fair assumption unfortunately <laughs> yeah <laughs> um or the amtrak but i think yeah Elon Musk is going to solve that before the federal government does. So I think self-driving cars are going to disrupt stuff before we get any kind of high-speed rail. So that assumption aside, we're going to see, like we had in the 60s and 70s, a similar kind of resource and wealth vacuum created in the city. So we then face a choice. Do we then repeat the mistakes that we made in the 70s of giving the authorship of what the city's future looks like to a few people at the top? Or do we democratize it? Mm -hmm. And we go into local communities and do we ask people, what's the future for the city that you want? I gotta be totally straightforward. Forward. This is coming right off the heels of interviewing four fascinating artists who talked about this sense of authorship mm -hmm. for urban development with the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, a project we just shot last week and it's going to be on exhibit at the Isabel Stewart Gardner in the spring. So quick plug, but the, cool. the, the full version <laughs> of this is going to be like 15 minutes <laughs> in a museum in the spring. Amazing. But my point is just that you talk about access, you talk about resources and who gets to have a voice and access to those resources. And I think when you see another white flight, when you see another kind of, vacuum created in the city, it's incredibly important for us to let the future be designed by local communities for what that city is going to look like. Right on. Yeah. Because if it comes from bureaucracy or if it comes from the top, it's going to be another episode of demolition, bulldoze, um, cultural appropriation, and assignment from the top people saying congratulations here is your city here's your culture here's your you know your design um and it would be another massive failure we did it with you know urban renewal in the 70s and all the way from city hall all the way down the southwest corridor over the orange line it was just kind of a massive error so instead, we really need to take this opportunity to empower people who are living in the cities, don't have the resources. In this case, it's like a self-driving car and a you know a couple of acres in New Hampshire. <laughs> um, you know, ask them, okay, how do you empower yourself? How do you empower your families and your communities to create a better city for yourselves? That's beautiful. You could have a podcast just about <laughs> the history of the city. It sounds like there's a lot of nuggets in there. I mean... Did you study that at Emerson? I studied it last... I'm telling you, I studied it on uh, Tuesday. Tuesday was... <laughs> Did you study it for this podcast? No. You prepared that much? <laughs> well, you threw me that question. I was like, <laughs> I feel a little overprepared because we had some unbelievably smart people downstairs in the studio. And like, full circle, this gets back to, you know, Wendy and our company and right. part of the... the the joy of, of being a part of part of it is that we get to be like kind of naive novice experts mm -hmm. <laughs> at Man, I get like that. 50 yeah. different subjects. Yeah. And I just got an earful from four brilliant people on Tuesday about 
exactly that topic, the yeah. sense of who gets to participate in a city. That's cool. Yeah, it's a similar, that's why I like sort of business and marketing consulting, because rather yeah. than work with one company, you get to work with many yeah. companies. Exactly. You get to learn from many smart people about many interesting and innovative things. Right. Works out well too if you have ADD. <laughs> cool. I, I've thoroughly appreciated this conversation. I know we're wrapping up soon. I, I'm, I want listeners to know that I've been trying to make really good eye contact with Trip. Um, <laughs> I'm sure and, they can hear that. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, as I said, eye contact, I like leaned in. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought that was one of your fun one word answers. I can't even remember what my question was. I think the question was, what do you look for in an interview subject? <laughs> there you and, go. Uh, you've been a really good interview subject as it relates I? to eye contact. Okay, good. Otherwise, yeah, you've been okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, we could do a whole offshoot podcast with the flow we have going right now. I feel like, well, we, we had a great day just chatting, and I feel like we could keep going. So. Yeah, no, we, we really could. Yeah. Um, we'll have to do it in a future one. For sure. Yeah. And I also should say that... Uh, Will's out of office for the holidays, so if he does ever get around to making it to the end of this episode, he should uh, should get a very formal apology from me that I stole his episode. <laughs> Will Will's episode's still coming. Okay, uh, he's, good. We already have one word answers filled out with Will. Good. And in the future, we will we will tackle them. Cool. Maybe we'll do it around that spring project you have coming. Spring project. The or the the project you're releasing in the spring. Oh, with Isabel Sir Gardner. Yeah. Dude, that project is awesome. Yeah. It yeah. sounds really cool. Yeah. We're very excited about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, Trip, this has been great. Thank you, Zach. Yeah. Um, when we first heard your idea for this podcast, we were here in the studio, I think, and the whole concept was so interesting because it was all about intersectionality, which I know is a very trendy word right now. Yeah. But just the idea that you're going to sit down and talk to somebody who you have nothing in common with and find that common ground yeah. is something that Boston so desperately needs. Yeah. That connective tissue is often extremely linear. Boston is a very connected city, but it's often completely along party lines. And by party, I might mean what you do for a living, where you come from, who you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, I think if you can make connective tissue that crosses those lines for the first time in this town, It'll be really valuable. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I would, I'll certainly be trying, <laughs> and and I hope we can all try together because it's, we have a beautiful city that we live in, and it's as is as is anything in life, and as is any person in life. There's always room for growth, so it's fun to feel a part of progress. Amen. So let's, so with that. Thank you, Boston. Thank you, Trip. You're very welcome. Thank you, Zach. All right. Have a good weekend, bud. Cheers. Thanks. Cheers. You too.